Crypto markets have been absolutely exploding outside of Bitcoin, which is seemingly consolidating under the 44,000 level, really around 42,000. Not a surprise now that things are a little bit boring as we wrap up the year, but we are coming into 2024 and there are a ton of positive catalyst tailwinds, tailwinds specifically for Bitcoin, but potentially even for other markets. Now, we don't right now have our favorite bear with us, Mike McGlone. So this might have a more uh, bullish bullish kind of uh, leaning than you would expect from a macro Monday on a Tuesday. I'm really excited that we're back. It's been, uh, been about nine, 10 days since we did a show. I've got James and Dave here. Maybe Michael pop in. Let's go, guys. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I'm Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel, hit that like button. That was one of my clunkier intros ever. You can tell that I'm rusty and that I've been uh, badly falling down a mountain behind my Olympian wife for the last week. I told you guys this story last year. We, we go to Snowmass now every year. It's the third time we've ever gone. I'm pretty proficient for someone who's been on a mountain 14 times, but my wife is doing like the slalom courses down the uh, Mogul Blacks after skiing 14 times. and literally waits for me at the bottom of the mountain for 25 minutes. It's the most frustrating thing in the world. I just cannot ski with her. It's so incredibly annoying, but I'm very proud of her. It's amazing. But that's what I was doing for the last week. We were skiing with the kids. Actually, the last day, I even ended up chasing my eight-year-old down the mountain, who we found out could do all the big blues and had no idea. So uh, really, really an exciting week. Merry Christmas to all of you. I will say anecdotally something that I found. I had quite a few people come up to me uh, while we were out in Snowmass in Aspen and say, hey, man, you know, listen, I'm a, I'm a fan of the show. A lot of the ski instructors watch the show. We found that out. So the first day I was there, two of them said, hey, man, you know, like uh, we watch every week. But what did they specifically say? 80% of them, I did a count, said, hey, man, I watch Macro Monday. They know me specifically from this day and watching or listening to this show and not the rest of my content at all, which I found really astounding and really a testament uh, to how much we've built and how quality the content is here on Mondays. Also want to welcome, I know you guys have been waiting, Misha is back. He is uh, out, of, uh, out of the United States system, at least temporarily, and out of the United States. He is here with us today in the wings, meaning that I don't have to come up with uh, bad titles and thumbnails myself or make sure that people actually get their calendar invites. You don't want to hear about any of this, but here we are. We're back on Macro Tuesday. I've got Dave and James. Good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for being here on a holiday. I don't even know what to do without McGlone. I, I was ready for him to tell us about commodities crashing, uh, Bitcoin being a leading indicator, and we're all dead. But instead, we went with Bitcoin will pump in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... You know, as we get into the new year, we'll 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 have to film our our uh, steak dinner. We're trying to figure out a good Brazilian churrascaria in uh, <laughs> you know in Miami for the forty thousand dollar you know forty thousand pump. Um, look, forty thousand dollar dinner, Mike. Forty thousand dollar. Forty thousand dollar dinner. Sorry, Mike. Won't be a forty thousand dollar dinner. I don't know. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to be drinking Screaming Eagle out of our shoes. Yeah, uh, it's going to be great. <laughs> You know, I think that the one thing that Mike would point to, because he, you know, he was in a, I read him over the weekend, he was talking about, you know, commodity prices again, uh, and, you know, what it indicates to the economy and the bond market's basically saying the same thing. And if in fact, all you did was you looked at the bond market and you saw 
this ridiculous curve. I mean, it is, it's ridiculous. I mean, you have, I mean, I don't know, how else would you describe it, James? You know, three months at five, three, and by two years, it's a point lower. And then it's basically flat out to 30 years. Yeah, it's bizarre. The, the, it's 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 a broken yield curve. Let's put it that way. It's There's broken. no other words for it, Scott. I mean, I I have a word for it, and you and everyone who watches the show knows my opinion. I use the word. If this was Sesame Street. It would be the word is or Jeopardy or whatever that that password that I show. The word is manipulated because obviously is. you can't look at this market and say that it makes any sense. I mean, it just just makes no sense. The only sense it makes, Dave, is that uh, people expect, widely expect for rates to come down, and that 10-year is the benchmark for that, right? So they expect rates to come down next year, and the 10-year has come down further. However, when you look at the 20 and the 30-year, rates are a little bit higher. So it feels like we've got we, we've got a little bit of rate premium coming back, and people are realizing, oh, my God, we are going to have a deluge of, of uh, bonds come to market. And now that the reverse repo is get, is getting drained, where are they going to go on this curve? And are they going to start going out on the curve when rates come come down? And how much are they going to you know have to issue? So that 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 could explain part of it. But that, again, that just means that we've got a system that's broken. I mean, there's it, it's clear. Yeah, I, I, go ahead, Dave. Yeah, I was just going to say, look, you know, the, the budget deficit. Uh, financing at this point, if they could dump the whole damn thing into the 10 year, they would, uh, at 4%. There's yep. no doubt. No, uh, no doubt. Which is how much can they without things breaking? That's really yeah. the question. I mean, let's, 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 let's be clear. And, you know, it, it's look, I was the one calling for it. You know, we missed last week, but I was the one calling for it. I kept saying that going into an election year, there's no effing way that the Federal Reserve is going to stay uh, restrictive. They're going to at least go to neutral, if not mm -hmm. a during an election year. I've been saying it all year long, and it's been my main reason why Mike and I don't agree uh, on macro. I mean, uh, the reality is I do agree that, you know, we have a, a serious excesses that have yet to be worked out of the economy. I do agree that fiscal situations, not just in the U.S., but certainly in the U.S., uh, are unsustainable. Uh, I agree with all of that and, and what he talks about. Where he and I start disagreeing is his notion of consumer, uh, not disinflation, but deflation, which I think is a joke. Uh, I think that you can't print this much money and have deflation. What you can have is commodities if, in fact, by encouraging too much production, commodities go down. Yeah, that that happens, the things that are cyclical. But you know, disinflation is not... In, is not deflation. It means your rate of change upwards is slowing. And James has made this point many, many times. Some of the best threads on on X have come from James's uh, explanation of how completely screwed up that is. So, I mean, we're in a situation where trust in governments are is is reaching. Is, it, it, every time we talk about this, it reaches new low. And so that brings me back to Bitcoin in 2024, which I believe is set up to be extremely volatile for a lot of reasons. And I want to talk about some of those later. Yeah, I just want to talk about that yield curve really quick. I've showed this chart a million times. You know, obviously you get the, the uninversion of the yield curve or the normalization. Then you get the Fed pivot. So the yield curve is blue. Then you get the Fed pivot in red. You know, it flattens out. That's sort of the pause that we're in right now. Then you generally get the stock market correction. As crazy as this is, how long we've been inverted, how deep the inversion went, 
we still are in that same pattern where sort of the Fed flattens out the uh, Fed funds rate. And then maybe we get the uninversion, right? You, you, it flattens out. Then you uninvert yeah. sort of at the end, right at the pivot. You know, you uninvert around the pivot. And then it so nothing, this could still continue to play out this cycle, even as kind of crazy and strange as it's been that we've been uninverted for this long. But to your point, in those past cycles, you never saw this volatility in rates. I mean, this is insane. Yeah. Right. Especially on a percentage basis. I mean, yeah, particularly there. But I mean, I think that... that what people need to understand is we are in a situation where, you know, it's the expression that a lot of people used to use was pushing on a string. Not quite that bad because they get some, you know, some juicing of the economy from it. But the truth of the matter is they're doing everything they can to juice the economy uh, and keep, you know, we're at relatively low unemployment. Admittedly, it's underemployment because of participation. And a lot of people are working two jobs. We are at the tail end of a cycle where by monetary policy being what it is, where the wealth gap is is been increasing, not necessarily income gap, but the wealth gap. There's actually some pretty good studies out there that say when you take transfer payments into account, income inequality isn't really that big of a deal. But the wealth gap is huge and it's getting bigger because pretty much all policy prescriptions move into asset price valuations. Whether it's housing becoming unaffordable, stock markets at high multiples, it, it, it looks like it needs to correct. The question is, can it correct in a situation where all policy prescriptions are trying to goose them? That's that's the difficult. So it's sort of like, you know, you talk about headwinds and tailwinds. It's if you're trying to prioritize capital, you can prioritize capital. And that's what we're seeing. I mean, I, can I it correct in an election? I mean, can it correct in an election year? We all no, know I mean, that literally, literally, if everything dumps from here, the election's over for the Democrats, period. Right. I mean, that, that's not a political statement. It's just a statement, I think, of fact. So I guess you have to decide whether the Fed is a political organization. But we know <laughs> the Treasury is a political organization. And I think that fiscal policy actually right now is driving... Mm -hmm the train much more than monetary policy. Yeah, look, I don't I don't think that I don't think that the White House is calling Powell demanding things. I think they're just very vocal and there's a lot of uh behind the scenes pressure coming from many different angles of the executive branch. It's not it's not just coming from the oval office. There's just there's a lot of pressure that that comes politically and I mean look Powell was was appointed by uh, a Republican, you know, so it, it's not, I, I don't think that he is particularly political. I just don't, that, that's not the way I see it. I see he's trying to do a job. He's trying to, to, you know, um, establish or reestablish credibility in the fed. And he's got a tough job. I mean, I wouldn't want his job as much, no, as much heat as we give him. I wouldn't want his job. It's terrible. What about Yellen? Oh, <laughs> well, the thing about Yellen, what I don't understand, it's very frustrating for me, is that she knows that she's that she's gaslighting and lying. She just knows it. And it's it, but when you when you step back and you think, OK, why is she doing that? She's doing it because she she doesn't have a choice either. She's also backed into a corner. She has to retain credibility in the Treasury. She must. She must retain credibility in the Treasury if that means that she's got to tell some white and, and just purely black lies, then she, she will. But, you know, um, 
it, again, it goes back to we. It, it's fiscal irresponsibility at the very top. The Treasury has a job, and their job is to facilitate the spending of the U.S. government and that budget. The the Fed has a job, and that is basically is to make sure that that we retain uh, credibility in the U.S. dollar. I mean, we talk about they they have a they they need to make sure that inflation is in check and that uh, you know that we have we have price stability. But why? What is that? That that all that is is it? It go back to first principles. The first principles are the Fed need, needs to make sure that we retain credibility in the dollar, and the Treasury needs to make sure we retain credibility in the in the in the bonds in the in the government bonds, and they're both being played politically at the, from the top of fiscal irresponsibility. So that's you know it. it Anyway, that's the way I see it. Maybe I'm a little bit more of a realist, but um, I, I don't. I don't think there are backroom meetings going on. I think that everybody's scrambling, trying to do a job that very difficult to do, and I don't believe that any of them are going to succeed particularly well. So, so I'm well, a little bit. I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit more tinfoil hat than James is. Uh, I think that when you have a sitting Treasury Secretary writing op-eds in the journal. There's the old William Shakespeare line, methinks thou doth protest too much. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and that, that is a, a ridiculous amount, you know, but they, that was basically, that editorial was basically, sounds like the wine. Well, why don't you love me? You know, I feel like this was like, you know, it, it's, it, it just seemed ridiculous. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everything is great. You should be happy. And of course, the people who read the journal are a demographic who are probably saying, yeah, things are okay. <laughs> the people who don't read the journal are like, what the hell are you talking about? Right. Right. <laughs> and, and, and that's really kind of amusing. But the fact is, I do not think that Powell is political in the sense of he wants to advantage uh, Biden in any way. I think that he's trying to maintain independence. Frankly, I've said it before. I think he's done under the circumstances as good a job as one could possibly imagine. I mean, look, the he's got the long end of the curve down by one percent. So, you know, in in what is it? Three months, James? When when yeah. was it at five percent? I mean, one yeah. percent down. But do we give him credit for that, or do I, I mean, well, I mean, it it, it, oh, it, it, it would have yeah. stopped with the rates. Now they're just pausing. So I guess God, the we would have can crucified him. We would have crucified him if the long rates went to six percent. That's true. I, I just I find so you got to give him I, credit. I, do agree. I, I think that he's been consistent. Four. I think he's been consistent in his language. He's done what he said. I will never get past the 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 problem, the small little fact that he created it in the first place. Oh, I didn't. Oh, say yeah, it. you get a whole yeah. lot of credit for you don't get you don't get a pass on that. Problem. Yeah, you don't get a, you oh, don't. I get agree. Pass. I mean, the fact that they were behind the eight ball, that they kept monetary mm -hmm. policy this you know that accommodated for so long, as the government was encouraging banks to buy long bonds, is is yeah, that is horrendous. But if you look over the last year. Face, if, if he had parachuted in a year ago, I would say he, he's done a phenomenal job. Uh, he didn't parachute in over a year ago. So, okay. I think that, that the criticisms are fair. He's but, flying the plane. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, the plane is, you know, he basically took a, was put into an airplane 
that was a four engine plane with one engine running and he's managed to keep it going and it looks like i don't believe he's going to have a soft landing i think that that's that that's fantasy i mean i, I the entire notion of that is just stupid yeah i think uh, the question then becomes is it like a soft recession you know or have we been in a recession already and is the rest of the world in recession i, I think the big one of the bigger problems at this point is that we've absolutely annihilated any fixed definition of what a recession is right, right. Uh, even when we went into one by the definition of you know gro uh no growth for consecutive quarters etc then they just said that's not the definition of a recession mm -hmm. so i think they'll just continue uh they'll just continue uh revising that slightly anytime uh, it's all it's all, that but that goes back to the first principle it's all narrative all narrative all narrative all narrative yeah. So, and it's yeah, sort maybe of like if you think about it this way, I was I was thinking about it over the holidays. I was thinking about how America, and, and obviously things are happening much faster than they used to. How the collapse of a mercantilist empire looks like what America looks like today. So you know, at what we were as little as fifty years ago, we were a manufacturing powerhouse. We had all the resources. And if you think about steel, and obviously you know where I'm going with what happened with U.S. Steel, but you know, it, it, think about it. We are one of the only places on earth with coal and iron ore and access to shipping lanes and, uh, at, and you know, all in the same place. And we can't make steel competitively in the United States. Think about that. That's not even, that's not, not. I mean, we have huge advantages, right, in order to produce steel. We're literally, I mean, if you look at where Pittsburgh is and you look at where, where iron ore comes from and where coal comes from, I mean, literally, we have those advantages. We can't do it anymore. Forget uh, electronics. Forget, it, it, it was, wasn't all that long ago that we were reliant on China for manufacturing masks because people mistakenly believe that that was going to somehow protect you against, you know, a virus, you know, with nanoparticles, but you know, whatever. Uh, the fact is, is we don't make stuff anymore. We've <laughs> hollowed out manufacturing. It's no different than the British empire, which was built upon mercantilism, bringing everything back. So we're like the overlords and trying to manufacture elsewhere. That is a real problem. And it's, and people understand that. And what we're seeing now is now the standard of living is rising in other countries, which are producing it. People here are noticing it, right? You know, your standard of living that we've imported for years and years and years starts to reverse. That's the trend that that's where all the angst is coming from. And the solution to that isn't going to be more mercantilism, i.e. more easy money, make it cheap for companies to offshore, make it cheap for companies, cheaper than it should be, uh, to automate and replace jobs. And that's why you're seeing calls for, like in Canada, and you know, it's, it's fringe candidates, but you know, universal basic income. What is universal basic income? Well, basically, it's uh, honestly, it's something that makes sense if you think about the implementation of a negative income tax. But what it is, is saying, listen, I know we don't have enough jobs for people. So we need to make sure that everybody has a standard of living. That's what it is. And think about what that means. Now, these are all big meta questions. But as you look at the markets today, we're sitting at a year of a presidential election, which is as, excuse me, I, I guess we're you know, we'll lose our PG rate or our G rate. No, we, we don't care about the G rating. You could say it's fucked up. We are shit. fucked no. up. <laughs> we have the most fucked up election. We literally have two candidates, which neither, which literally the country neither won 
has it, it, do people want to vote? I mean, if you actually did a, a simple vote, 80%, 80 of the people down the middle, 80% in the middle would, would be like, I don't want either candidate. Either of them. Either yeah, everybody's voting against somebody with their nose plumped. That's, right. I mean, that's and it's, and it's, it's insane. Right. You know, and so we have that because we have this calcified system and the people at the top, the as you like to call it, the gerontocracy. And as I just turned 62, I feel like, oh, my God, am I become part of the problem? No, nope. <laughs> I look at myself in the mirror and I go, you know what? I still hate these people. So maybe I'm not part <laughs> of the problem. But, you know, the fact is that we have this gerontocracy sitting on top with ridiculous rules. I mean, you know, we haven't talked about, you know, all the stuff that evolves crypto, but, you know, it really matters. Right. You know, there was some great posts. I mean, Chris Perkins from CoinFund had a great post about, you know, why he served in the military and why, you know, crypto actually matters. And there's lots of good things that you can talk about and what we all care about. But at its core, I'm in this because I believe a new financial system is necessary. That's egalitarian. That's open to all. And that doesn't have these calcified institutions kind of sitting on top of us. And if you want to know why am I bullish on Bitcoin and bearish on the stock market? You know, so that I agree with Mike and a lot of what he says, I'm bullish on Bitcoin because I think this cycle is the one where it breaks, where, where, where that starts to dawn on more than just us fringe lunatic tinfoil hat types. That's why. Man, well, that was great. Go ahead, James. If we can go back to what you were talking about, um, and if you could, you know what, uh, can you pull up a, a, the... Uh, the tweet i mean the, a thread on december 12th yeah, can, yeah. Uh, just just in, talking, in, i'll find it yep yeah it is a, a, a thread on the treasury you were talking about well who how did they get the rates down how did they get the rates down you know quite honestly um there we had the we had that terrible auction we talked about that 30-year auction it was absolutely abysmal and the treasury just about panicked you know um and so flash forward about a month and you have the next uh, auction. And yeah, so if you can just make that bigger so we can see, please, <laughs> Scott. Yeah, yeah right no, there. Good. This is yeah. what I do. And then, uh, and, then, and then go down to that little chart. So what, it was kind of masterful what they did. If you look at, if you look at the December 12th, all the way to the right, and, uh, and you look at this, the breakdown of this is the primary dealer's up at the top, you know, you've got you you've got your uh, domestic uh, bids in the middle, and you've got your foreign bids basically at, at the bottom, right? Well, if you look at November 9th, is that's when the the auction was absolutely terrible. Yeah, there you go. So you could see that uh, the the primary dealers had to take 25% of the auction, 24.7% because there wasn't demand. Period. They were stuck with it, right? That was what everybody was like freaking out about. You could see that the foreign demand fell from 65. That was 75% earlier in the year. So it went all the way down to 60%. I mean, like, this is just awful, right? Then flash forward to December 12th. Look at how great the numbers are. The primary dealers only took 14%. And then the domestic uh, bids were 17%. And foreign bids were back up to 69%. Wow, look at that. What an amazing auction. We're back in business. No problem. Everything's good, right? Now look at the numbers themselves. The exact same demand. 14, 14 billion, 3.14.3 billion, 3.6 billion. And so all they did is dial it back. They dialed it back 
three billion dollars so the dealers weren't left with that extra three billion dollars they knew exactly what the demand was so this is how the rate this, this is literally how the rates have come down it, it, it's kind of like they've snowed the market and i can't believe nobody's nobody's looking at this and picked up on this there are a lot of reasons that rates have come in because of the fed jawboning and all that no doubt about it but this is a big reason this is a big deal here so the question for me is and going back to dave's uh you know, uh, analysis of of we're we're heading into a massive shit show this year. Well, we haven't even gotten to some of these auctions that we're going to need after all of them. The deficits we're running in the last month are massive. You know, so we when we start having these auctions, like where's where's it going to go? <clears throat> where's this money? And I'm not out there, and I'm not tinfoiling saying nobody's going to buy U.S. bonds anymore. I'm saying that we're we're pushing the envelope for the marginal balance sheet to own these bonds. And now here's the here's the funny thing. At the same exact time, you're going to have a Bitcoin ETF come out and if there it in if you're thinking long long term, if you're a, if you're a money manager and you're thinking long long term, do you want to own a 30-year US Treasury not knowing what inflation's going to be in the next 10 20 years? Or do you want to just grab one, two, three percent of uh, an asset that cannot be inflated, that can't be de deflated away from you, a uh, Bitcoin? Like there, you're going to start having these conversations. Not this year, I don't think, but you're going to start having these conversations because of this problem. Eventually, I think that when I listen to you guys, it just boils down to Mike being right. Inevitably, I think we all know corrections, depressions, yeah. recessions eventually come, but being horribly impossible to determine the timing or it's to determine so or to determine how effectively they can kick that can down the road. Maybe we don't know all the tools they have. I mean, you just showed us one, right? Yeah. Uh, the number, the headline numbers come in great, great auction, but no, they just offered 3 billion less, right? And so how many tools like that do they have in the background that they can use to make sure that this at least kicks past the election or into 20, whatever year they need to be in before they allow the economy to crash. Ad infinitum. <laughs> I mean, look, right. It, so, it, but but if you believe it's ad infinitum, <clears throat> then we can just be bullish and ride it, ride it till the wheels fall. Well, I've been saying this for a long time. Davis was saying, you know, this can this can go on for a while. The, um, trying to determine when a recession is going to occur is extraordinarily difficult, as we've all seen. And that's why, you know, we always say it the, in, in the chart you just showed, Scott, um, of, of how the, the markets roll over after the pause, after the, the, re, uh, the uninversion, that it's so difficult to time that. Why? Because th this economy is a mash massive ocean liner. Like when it turns like, OK, that's it, man, it's going this direction. And then to stop it. You know, like you, it always over overstate. You know, the Fed always overstays their their welcome, and we always overcorrect. It's just the reality, and so that's why it maddens me when people look at unemployment and they say, "Yeah, but everybody's got jobs, everything's great," until they don't, and that happens so quickly because the those turns. You know. Okay, I mean, well, go ahead, Dave. I, I, then, uh, Dave, after you. Go go respond to that. Let's actually talk about Bitcoin because I know we want to get into all right. this. Right. I would just say a very go simple ahead. point. We have a lot of time. If this was not an election year, I would think that this would be one of the roughest springs pre-tax season we would ever be facing since it's, it feels so much like 2001. 
We had a big year, uh, surprising people and valuations got crazy. We had this, you know, it, it, it's, and what, what's the pinprick? The pinprick is people who need to sell stuff to live waiting. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you. I own some stuff that I have no interest in selling in 2023, but when the calendar flips to 2024 and I have to take the capital gains, at least I, I have a year to pay taxes on it. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I don't think I'm alone. I think there are a lot of people that are going to have uh, taxes owed. And when that those the, when the assets that get sold for taxes happen in March, I'm not sure there's bids uh, in this environment. And so I think that, that we could be looking at a pretty ugly March. Now, understand, and even in, in 2001, yeah, there was a, a monumental crash of the Internet bubble, you know, and all those 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 stocks got crushed. Uh, but then it rallied in the summer right back to it before it started sliding into ignominy. I mean, I, I'm just saying this is I'm just saying that there is there's a setup here that doesn't look particularly good. But being an election year and being what I've said, I just don't see, you know, I, I think the, the plunge protection team, the PPT. And for those not old enough to know what that is, you can go you can Google it. But basically, it's the theory that the Fed, the Treasury and the big banks don't allow uh, more than a 20 some odd percent correction before they go in and start buying S&Ps and don't tell you that they're doing it uh, in order to keep to arrest the downside movement. So whether or not that's true or not is, is one of the great debates. It's sort of like the, the whether or not gold is manipulated down debate. Right. You know, a lot of people will say that. Anyway, my point here is it, it, it's kind of an ugly setup where where you we've been having this rally and the underlying stuff has been fundamentals. If you think of it as a metaphor, it's like a bridge and the pins are getting knocked out, but they're, but the bridge is still there. And, and, yeah, I worry and everything's just priced to perfection. I mean, it's just, you know, like if you have any hiccup, like God, how many times have we seen this Dave where you, you're just like, well, the entire, like the whole herd is, is heading this direction and it just doesn't, it feels something just feels off, you know, and yeah. and of course we can point to these different things. It, it, who knows what happens and what the event is, but you we don't get through these years. Forget about even I mean, and we have this election, this just shit show of an election. There's just I don't see how we get through this year without hiccups. I just can't see it. And I'm not being negative. I'm being realistic. I'm just like, how do you how do you think we're going to get through this year without some sort of event? I mean, We've got I, I, global I, things going on. But on the other hand, I just want to be clear. I mean, the ec basic economic indicators are all still quite healthy. I mean, you know, I, I haven't talked about it in a while, but my favorite one was the Baltic Dry Index, which in December yeah. went nuts. I mean, literally nuts. You know, yeah. it was trading around a between 1,000 and 1,200 most of the year. Coming into the fall, it kind of got to 2,000 and came back to 1,500. It went up to 3,500. And the volatile, and this is this is how much shipping you have. I mean, it's friggin' nuts. Yeah, well, then that that goes back to the you know the the uh, the saying that we take the the market takes the escalator up and the elevator down, right? Yeah. And so, but maybe one of the big things I think that everybody underestimates just how much liquidity is not just out there and was pumped into the markets, but how it's still leaking in, how it's still leaking into the markets, and so. That liquidity is allowing for a a, a much softer landing in, in reality, but I still do. I, I I'm I cannot get past the fact that we just don't have soft landings. You know, it's just it's extraordinarily well, different. It, so it, it's just how much how much of the, is that liquidity going to hold up the market 
before we start seeing that that turn of events where you have the those just a a kind of acceleration of bankruptcies and layoffs and you know margin pressures so yeah, I mean, if you take right. it back to to bitcoin and we, and we do need to talk about that uh it's it really is fascinating you know it, it really is fascinating because it's bitcoin is not a u.s phenomena has never been a u.s phenomena but is about to become more of a u.s phenomena and that's kind of what's going on here right you know it's yes there are the the, the in the percentage of quote the smart money in bitcoin in the u.s as opposed to the rest of the world is the highest uh because it's a very, very there are just very few people i mean think about it you know we know what are there 19 million bitcoin in circulation 40 some odd millionaires in the world do the math uh you know it's like it's not a it's not widely held among people who have wealth it's widely held among people who do not have traditional wealth that's a big difference yeah it's a right. huge difference and it, it it it's a ground it's it yeah it's a grassroots movement that's moving upwards and so they don't need it i mean you and I know, like i've known plenty of people on wall street who I, are just like yeah right. bitcoin's a you know i don't they don't need it they quite honestly you know and that's the problem well it's not the problem that's a challenge for bitcoin and that's why this year is going to be so important because suddenly it's going to be on their radar as something they cannot ignore anymore they right. just can't ignore it they can't say, well, I can't own it because it's just too difficult. I don't want to take custody or I can't take custody or I don't know how to settle it. Now it's going to be like, why not? You're, it's offered right there by your prime broker. Or I yeah, want it in my 401k. I, I wonder if that well, solves I want it the, that option to my 401k. Why can't I yeah, have that? Yeah. Yeah. I guess my question there is, does what you just described actually solve for that demand? If they're dismissive of it and they say, I don't need it, do they even care that they get well, an ETF it, and it makes it easier? I think they will eventually but that that does make me question slightly the initial demand like we know we know that this is going to give everyone in america the tool to get exposure no I, yeah right? yeah and the I question think, is I, will they care would I they have do not, not think would they have not, not found a way already the, i do not think that we get the approval and bitcoin goes to $120,000 the next day i just that's not the way it's going to happen no. i do believe that it it's kind of it it's i don't know if you saw that uh, that 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 meme or the the video that uh, Sven sent out um, a couple months ago of the sheep just kind of going through the the gate and there's like two or three chickle through and then like four or five and then every, all the other sheep are like oh we're going through the gate and then suddenly you've just got a flood of sheep going through the gate it's it, it's kind of it's going to be like that where you know you you start getting the realization that this is real it's out there it's easy to trade it's easy to settle and you're going to have the people demanding it. You're going to have employees demanding that it's on their sheet as something that they can check off for their 401k. They want to be able to put this in there. And just up, even a little bit, just 1%, just let me put a little bit in there. You know, that's going to happen. And then you're going to have RIAs. Thousands and thousands and thousands of RIAs are going to be like, well, I'm my my investors have been asking for this and now i have a way to get them in this it's so easy to just uh, now i have a way to <laughs> make some fees getting them into this absolutely 100 percent. nothing wrong yeah. with that i i, I think but the, uh 
Right. They have a fiduciary duty. They can't tell their clients to go to Coinbase. And I mean, it, so they just Scott, can't. But, but the, you know, I, I do think it's more about what, what they can make money advising. And if they can make money advising it now, that's going to be huge. By the way, we're two, I mean, tomorrow is two weeks until the D-Day, I guess, for these ETF approvals on January 10th. So we're well, getting let, very let, close. Let's talk about two things. I, first, I want to answer a question that one of your, uh, one of your subscribers asked on X this morning. They said, well, why is it that Bitcoin has been stuck you know, in this trading range. And, and and that's an easy answer. And and we've seen this easy answer multiple times. And I've talked about, you know, you talk about markets. Now, I always hate oversimplifying, but let's let's oversimplify just to make it simple. I like yeah. oversimplifying. So market, so at the end of the day, the in market cycles, you have under you have uh, long-term buyers. And, you know, in up cycles, you have long term buyers, which causes grinding upwards and you have blow off speculators and the speculators are the hot money and the speculators get impatient very quickly. So when the long term buyers take a pause, which is what, what's gone on. So people were buying Bitcoin from the 20s into the 30s. And when it got into the 40s, the long term buyers like, yeah, OK, well, you know, getting to the end of the year, I'm going to go get my G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I'm kind of done here and we'll wait. We're positioned for because everybody, anyone who was the smart money accumulators knew that all, there's been no new news on the Bitcoin ETF side. Everyone kind of knew it was there. So at this point, the approval is priced in, not the, the ultimate reaction to the approval. Not, not the demand. Yeah. Not the demand. Correct. People don't know what the timing will be. And we're going to talk about but that in a bit. But the fact is, every time in the history of, of Bitcoin, and now it's been nowhere near statistically significant enough because it's only three or four cycles. But the fact is when Bitcoin pauses and Ether pauses, then the smart money or the fast money finds the next hot thing to rotate into. And of course, this time it was Solana. It was actually something I own. So I was like, okay, well, that's kind of cool. Usually I'm, I'm lo looking at this stuff saying, oh, it's some dog with hat coin and you know I have nothing to do with it. But the, the reality is, is it's just nothing more than that. I mean, as long as Bitcoin is kind of holding that 42 level, uh, it's right where it should be. And the longer it consolidates there, and I said this two weeks ago, and I said this four weeks ago, the longer it consolidates there, the stronger the post, not approval, the post launch move is likely to be. The post approval move will be something. And a lot of that will retrace. And it may it's like this. That's like the having. It's like the, there's yeah. some there's some news happened, but nothing happened. Nothing's happening. Yeah. The surface. If you if you want to see like if, if you want a little bit of an indicator, and this is one of the, the indicators of whether or not institutional money is is going to come into these ETFs. Just take a look at how MicroStrategy, Coinbase, GBTC, how these have been trading, and they have been trading at a, a high beta to Bitcoin as it's as it's come up. And the reason is they they know that there's there's demand there and that these are going to all benefit from it. And so, you know, that that's a it's a pretty it's a it's a it's a soft or it's um it's um it's a little bit messy, but it's a real indicator, you know. Yeah, uh, but go ahead, Dave. I can no, see no, you, you don't. got something. No, I, I, I just maybe I'm blind to what's happening here. First of all, to what Dave's point to answer that question, nothing goes straight up forever, right? I mean, you can look at any chart anywhere of any asset. 
even if it goes parabolic, you have very long periods of consolidation and you want that. And frankly, you want to see that sort of selling happen so yeah, that everybody's healthier. not just yeah. waiting. It's very healthier, healthy to see it happen in that way. So I don't think that's a surprise. We're also in the middle of the holidays, right? I just don't see at this point tremendous headwinds unless we get some major black swan or something we're not expecting for Bitcoin specifically. So I don't disagree with Mike McGlone that if we get this recession or depression or great reset, I just don't see that happening in the next two or three months at this point, right? Because we've discussed that they can kick the can down the road. That could do it. I'm not uh, honestly. No, you could you could but, have a you could have a credit event. You could have the repo market freeze up. You could have something that could happen. But that's a V. Right. That's a V sell off and recovery. You know that's so exactly. So then you that's a dip to buy in my opinion. Absolutely. But if you're looking at an election year, the four year cycle in crypto, the having yeah, yeah, yeah. the ETF approval, the four year cycle in everything that I discussed with Raul Paul repricing the debt, all these things. It just seems, and I hate to be like this, but it just seems like there's not many obvious things that should send Bitcoin back to lows or a massive 80% correction. It just seems like time for this thing to slowly grind up and max pain might be in that direction. Maybe I'm missing something. No, I, I think I, that I, people, that, that everyone keeps saying that and, and that always makes me nervous, right? When that happens, except yeah, for me too. Fact. It makes me nervous, except when you actually ask people, that's what people are talking about. Look what people are doing. There are a lot of people out there, I mean, lots, who are like, ah, this rally is terrible. It's going to be a sell the news event. And maybe it will. They sell the news event because people don't truly understand. Approval doesn't mean they go live. I mean, the curveball the SEC threw people, and this needs to be discussed, the curveball of cash creation uh versus oh yeah Matt, we need to, we need to clarify great. that for people it's not definitely. great I, I mean even matt hogan came on you know he's from bitwise so i guess he's talking his book and he said listen any approval is a win any approval is good but it is a very big difference right so let me explain the difference to your your you know i go back with etfs a long way for people who, who want to understand my history uh, i used to be in program trading for years and years and years and actually the second patent granted in etfs was for something called opals optimized portfolios as listed securities back you can look it up. It's a, it's a long time ago, but I invented the trading methodology for that. So in 1927. Not, no, it's not that far. <laughs> yeah, I remember it. I was doing the Charleston in a club, drinking my uh, yeah, you know, really. illegal alcohol, and Dave was creating automated trading systems. Yeah, if I was if I was an Islander, but you don't see me pulling a sword out of my back. And go ahead, old man. Go in ahead. any case, so the old guy's going to tell you. So look, uh, the fact of the matter is, almost every ETF out there has the following players. They have the issuer, which is the fund. Sometimes they have an advisor, but whatever. They have a custodian who holds the assets. And then they the issuer qualifies and accepts some number of what's called authorized participants. Those authorized participants are generally Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, Jane Street, Citadel, et cetera. Large financial firms, mostly market makers, who have program desks, who can buy all the stock that they need for stock ETFs, or have a line on the bonds or have a line on the commodities. But back up, Dave, like just identify each of those pieces for people. The yeah, BlackRock uh, is and Coinbase, yeah. Right, so BlackRock is a fund issuer uh, and they do their own advice, but because there is no advice in the case of Bitcoin, it's one thing. Most ETFs have indexes, but if it's gold or if it's Bitcoin, it's one thing. 
Uh, Coinbase is the yeah. qualified custodian for BlackRock. Fidelity is their own custodian, although it's a different part of the organization, you yeah. know, et cetera, et cetera. And you can go through all of the applications, uh, you know, who's involved. Now, in some of the cases, such as with 21 shares and ARC, ARC is an issue where 21 shares understands the, the trading side of it. Uh, obviously, where Galaxy is involved, they understand the trading side of it. You get that. The fact is, in general, in ETFs, the authorized participants are the ones who will acquire Bitcoin or acquire the underlying asset, deliver them to the issuer and get units. So let's be specific. Let's talk about the Bitcoin ETF. Let's just say for a simple argument that the size to create a unit of an ETF is 100 Bitcoin, probably around the right size. It's generally between three and five million dollars worth of stuff. And then you get a bunch of shares. So let's just say they want the price to be around 44 bucks. So the issuer creates, says, hand me 100 Bitcoin and I will give you 100,000 shares. The, the amount of Bitcoin, if it was in kind, that's all they have to say. Say, you, you give me 100 Bitcoin at any time of the day that where I'm open and for a fee, I will hand you 100,000 ETF shares. That would be in-kind delivery, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. It's up to the market makers to figure out that, that you know, what's going on. So they're going to make bids and offers in the market all day long. And, they're, and to the extent that the ETF has a lot of buying and they need to create more, well, they go create a block of it at 100,000. And it could trade at a spread to that net asset value of Bitcoin based upon the difficulty and the risk in having to buy 100 Bitcoin at a time as opposed to an order for 100 or 200 or 500 shares out of the 100,000. So that difference is generally called the arbitrage channel. And at all times, you can deliver 100 Bitcoin and get the ETF, or you could deliver 100,000 ETF shares and get 100 Bitcoin. Now, yes, there's sometimes a little bit of cash involved, but it more or less, you have that all day long. And that's why it's different than GBTC, which can trade at a premium or discount all day long. So what did the SEC do? Well, the SEC... And the reason they did it is obvious. I wish I wish it weren't, but it's true. It's that most of the broker dealers who are also authorized participants are not allowed, literally not allowed to trade Bitcoin as a commodity in their broker, uh, in their broker. In fact, if, you look, dealer. Yeah. if you look, that's why Robinhood has a separate a separate. Uh, you know, affiliate that trade that allows people to trade Bitcoin mm -hmm. with. Fidelity does it through a separate affiliate, etc. It's a completely separate unit. The Fidelity <clears throat> crypto unit is completely separate. That's right. So I went through this with with uh, working with them about being a prime broker for the Bitcoin Opportunity Fund. It's completely separate. Right. It, they they barely even talk. So the SEC doesn't let the broker dealer touch Bitcoin. So they said, well, wait a minute. If authorized participants have to deliver hundred Bitcoin, they're going to have to buy it. We don't want to let them buy it. Now, one could argue, and Hester Peirce has been quite vocal on this point as to why this is idiotic policy, but, and frankly, I personally had conversations with Robert Cook, who runs FINRA, who kind of privately admits that it would be better if broker-dealers could be involved, but we'll, we'll table that for a second. So let's just take it as an axiom. This is, you know, after all, you know, whatever, that, that broker-dealers can't. So what did they do? They said, okay, so you have to do cash creation. What does that mean? That means instead of giving 100 Bitcoin. Right now, you have to deliver 4,200,000, and I will give you 100,000 shares. What does that mean? That means that every issuer has to, in real time, 
create what's effectively a two-sided quote for 100,000 ETF shares. Most issuers don't do quotes. That's what market makers do. Most issuers don't have to trade on a continual ongoing basis and take risk. That's what market makers do. Now they have to. So every issuer needs a screen such as I'm staring at at CoinRoutes where we can, you know, we provide the technology for people to do this. I'm not saying they're going to use us or not. They're certainly welcome to, and we're going to talk to them. But we publish two-sided quotes that actually look at the full depth of order book. Because remember, they have to publish not just one quote. They have to say, yes, for 100,000 shares, here's our quote. If you want a million shares, they have to make a different quote. Because now there's much more demand than there's liquidity in the market. And you could look at what a thousand Bitcoin is, and that's a lot wider, of course, because the order book is thinner than it is for a hundred shares. So you've taken what market makers do competitively. You might have 10, 12 reasonably good market makers on every single issue that know how to do this. And all those market makers, by the way, have the ability to trade perpetual swaps offshore. They have the ability to trade futures. They have the ability to trade spot. They can have a coordinated portfolio. They may be hedging options positions. They have lots of stuff. These issuers have none of that. And so what are they going to do? To my understanding, this is all uh, also wildly tax inefficient, right? Uh, no, that, that's, that's a non- is that, that not true? That's a, that's a misnomer. It's tax inefficient, it, 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 very small. It, the, basically, these things are set up as what's called grantor trusts. So the existing holders don't get impacted by this. Right, okay. It's only the people who are buying and selling it. So that's, that's kind of a red herring. But the simple fact that we've taken 10 issuers who have literally never, have always outsourced this function, they now have to outsource it. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to take in market makers feeds and try to you know, aggregate those together. But now understand something, instead of the market maker who gets the trade, you have you have two extra, you have an extra mouth to feed. By definition, it's gonna be more expensive. So we're forcing the issuers to be traders. We're forcing the issuers right. to be traders. That's what you're doing. And so you're- Market makers. You're forcing them to the be risk? market makers. So, yeah. so what's the risk then to retail or to the person who's buying this ETF who doesn't understand that now uh, they're it's issuing it's done, right? Slightly wider yeah. spreads. Wider spread. And yeah. slightly less performance on some. The market, the it, look, the, the the issuers who are good at doing this, and, and have the, the the ones who have the largest balance sheet are going to have the effectively have the advantage, and that doesn't well, it doesn't mean it's going to be BlackRock. I believe whoever gets the most be, AUM fastest, effectively. Exactly. So like Dave, like, but, but Dave, what people get confused about is the creation redemption versus just the public marketplace. So maybe you can just, is going to yeah. be similar. But here's the thing. There's 10 of these things. I don't think more than three or four of them uh, are, are will, I, I don't know why I would use the word survive. I think three or four of them will get the lion's share of the assets. Will thrive. Is, yeah, yeah, yeah but three isn't or four this, that actually thrive. Let me ask a, another question then. I, listen, I've been off. I haven't been tracking things, but this sounds horrible for GPTC and for Grayscale because they're already holding why is it horrible? No, it's easy for them. Why they is it don't horrible? Have to make they have a ton of AUM. They know how to trade. They already have all the established relations. But it doesn't matter that they're holding it all already in Bitcoin? Irrelevant? That's actually helpful. It's easy for them. They've already got it. Yeah, they've got their AUM sitting there. Yeah. So I, they, I, I like a built in, it's, got a, it's, it's got built-in liquidity already. I mean, if, they, if, if they're smart and they understand. I mean, here's the thing. In the short run, it isn't going to matter. In the long run, 
the firms that are better, and there's two pieces of it. If you think of it this way, if you quote wider, that means market makers, that means the spread of your underlying is going to be wider, okay? And that makes people eh, less happy to buy or sell it. They'll pick the ones that are have tighter spreads. Because remember, everyone's buying these in brokerage accounts that they pay no commissions on if they're retail or if their institutions are paying very low. So the spread matters in terms of attracting assets. But here's the rub. If you quote tightly, and let's say you think you can buy at 42.613, which is where it's trading right now, and you end up buying at 42.8, now your fund is as a, that's a performance drag, right? That comes from performance of the fund. So if you quote wide, you don't incentivize as much assets in if you, but if you trade better, so let's say you quote what you trade underneath it, your fund is going to have better performance because you're going to do this. Now, here's a dirty little, not dirty little secret, but here's a piece of financial history. There were two firms that were, that realized when they were index funds that if an index funds, for those who don't know this, like say an S&P index fund gets priced you know, in real time, you know, et cetera. But, you know, when there's index change events and things go in and out, the closing price matters, right? Because that's when it goes into the index. Vanguard, through a guy named Gus Souter, figured out he could make trading into a profit center. He could make the fund outperform the S&P so that when he takes his fees off, you know, if his, if he, his outperformance is bigger than his fees, then it's going to outperform. There's a reason Vanguard became the largest mutual fund on the planet because they've been able to goose their performance. Trading matters for long-term performance. It will not matter very much for the first year. Marketing will dominate and AUM will dominate. Trading and we're gonna have 12 to 14 companies. Uh, we already have Bitwise running Scramble. the most interesting yeah. man in the world with Bitcoin cufflinks, right? Uh, I'm sure you guys all saw the commercial, but if you didn't, you know, basically marketing, <laughs> there you go. Marketing, I mean, marketing, I love it. Yeah, marketing, it uh, marketing the Bitcoin ETF. I don't think we've ever seen a marketing campaign effectively for an asset hitting the mainstream at once, like we're about to see for this, assuming the approval. So everything we're talking about, about this cash stuff is it's going to create dispersion among issuers, but that Maybe will not play thing. out or be very relevant for the And firm. it doesn't, and it doesn't, it doesn't create paper Bitcoin. It doesn't create more opportunity for, for what we call rehypothecation. Like if that's not, that doesn't has nothing to do with it. It's just, it's what Dave just walked through. It's just that's that's all it is. Exactly right. Understand that everyone talks about the paper Bitcoin, the futures, the CME futures. That is paper Bitcoin. That's right. That settles in cash. You could short it, etc. Now, the, the 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 reality is, when I've been looking at this, I mean, you're you're talking about, uh, you know, you're you're basically looking at a five hundred dollar premium to January from December. You know, it's not very much relative to previous rolls, but when you when you want to see shorting of Bitcoin, the futures uh, go get that premium goes lower, lower, lower. It could even go negative, and there's nothing stopping that. We just haven't seen that in this particular okay, round. Yeah. 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 So it, it really it's much ado about nothing to the individual. It is much ado about something to the issuers, and in the long run, will matter to the issuers. That's really the point. So, yeah, Scott, so you're going to have this you, a media blast, a marketing uh, blitz, right? And there's going to be obvious winners that, in my mind, like like Fidelity and, and uh, BlackRock and, and GBTC, because they, they have the, the weight, right? They have the, the underlying demand already there in-house. 
And then you're going to have a one, two, three that just kind of pop up. And they're just like the flavor that, that the kids like, you know, that's what it's the ones that, that people are just going to gravitate to. And then I do think there's going to be some sort of consolidation. I don't think that there's, there's going to be enough demand for 12 of these things no to survive. No way. No way. And I'll be saying, I love, I love all the guests we've had from all of these companies and everybody who's trying. I'm an investor in Valkyrie, as I've said, yeah, but I would be very surprised if BlackRock yeah. and Fidelity don't grab the bulk of the AUM. And if we don't eventually see Vanguard come in, right? Even though they've been dismissive of it, I think if they see a successful prop, uh, project, uh, if, you know, successful launches here and a ton of AUM that they'll come in as well. I can see, I know we're coming to the end. My wife right here is saying, hi guys, kids are here too. See guys, <laughs> uh, my, my, my eight-year-old, and she just, Emmy just texted me. She said, you know, our daughter is watching. She said, why isn't daddy talking more? <laughs> and I said, and I said, cause she doesn't know Dave. Um, <laughs> but hi, Max and because Miles. Because Dave and has a microphone. Dave has a microphone. That's why. <laughs> because, because dad, because daddy, like, like you guys, like an eight-year-old and a four-year-old trying to make sense of Bitcoin ETF. I'm just here to learn. No, you know? it, it, but listen, for, for your, your kids who are watching, Scott has the ultimate power with the mute button. He can mute Dave and me all day long. That's right. I can make people <laughs> quiet anytime I want, but I can make myself. See, I just went away right there when I did that. And now I see people. Hi, Emmy. Congrats on beating Scott down the mountain. Yeah, Emmy, if you weren't watching at the beginning, Max, you as well. I talked uh, about how both of you guys were much better skiers than me. I mean, my eight-year-old, you know, we thought that she was just doing the little greens in the class. And the last day she says, I want to go down the big stuff. And we said, okay. And she went to the top of the mountain and did the hard blues all the way down the mountain. Absolutely. Absolutely incredible. Kids are amazing. Uh, their dads, maybe awesome. not so much. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys, this has been a lot of fun. I'm so happy uh, that we're back. I think next week we're going to do Tuesday also because uh, January 1st is Monday. They're really messing with our schedule here. Uh, guys, I really appreciate the perspective. And in the next two weeks, where maybe we'll be talking about an approval of this ETF and uh, have a lot less uh, job owning yeah. about what's likely to happen. We won't have to make a uh, Wow predictions. But I think 2024 is going to be an amazing year. And I, I will see all of you guys in 2024 for the next show. Awesome. Thanks, James. Thanks, Dave. Maybe we'll get McGloom back. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Likely. Bye, everyone. Take see care. You guys. That's dope.